0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 438. It's titled, Why Are You Investing? Defining Your Rich Life with Ramit Sethi. This week, we have a special episode. It's a conversation that my sons Camden and Brett held with Ramit Sethi. Some of the things they discussed, what does it mean to live outside the spreadsheet and have a rich life, the importance of learning how to spend, not just save and invest, approaching investing when you don't come from an investment background, and what to do if you are feeling behind. Ramit Sethi is host of Netflix How to Get Rich and the I Will Teach You to Be Rich podcast. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, I Will Teach You to Be Rich, and writes for over a million monthly subscribers on his website, IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com. On the website and his other work, he covers psychology, personal finance, careers, and entrepreneurship. We hope you enjoy this discussion between Camden, Brett, and Ramit. All
1: right, so jumping right in, our first question is, how should people define their rich life, and why is it important to do so?
2: Well, for me, one of the biggest tragedies is people who spend their entire lives going to work, diligently saving, investing, and when you start to ask them, what are you going to do with this money? They have no real answer. In fact, the answer that most of us give is a pre-rehearsed answer. When I ask people this question, I love to ask, what is your rich life? Over 85% of people say the same thing. I want to do what I want, when I want. I go, oh, okay, not this again. But I go, wow, that's so interesting. What what do you want to do? And then they just stare at me. Think about that. Most of us have spent our entire lives going to work, saving, investing, but never really thought about what's the purpose of it all. What is our rich life? So I think it's incredibly important for a couple of reasons. Number one, we got to have a reason we're doing all this stuff. Otherwise, life is just one unending series of transactional decisions after another. And second, it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more fun if you decide my rich life is traveling Two months a year, or my rich life is buying a beautiful cashmere coat, or my rich life is picking up my kids from school every afternoon. And all of these things can be supported with time and money. So that's how, that's why I get people thinking about a rich life. It can totally change the contours of the decisions you're making, of realizing, oh my gosh, maybe I already have saved enough, or maybe I need to invest more. And then you can actually start living your rich life today and living a richer life tomorrow. And
3: so part of what I I really enjoy about, you know, just having read your book and, and listening to some of your podcast episodes is when you talk about defining your rich life and then enacting your rich life, you talk a lot about spending. And you talk a lot about how, you know, we spend a lot of time, like you said, thinking about how to get better at saving, how to get better at investing, but we don't talk about how to
2: get better at spending as much. Yeah. Well, personal finance nerds, think a lot about that that's true you have to remember in the personal finance world it's like oh let's talk about uh the trinity study it's actually quite outdated and well what about this and the tax implications it's like "Mm, okay i think you got it i think you probably got most of what you need to get what i say is everyone teaches us how to save but nobody teaches us how to spend and spending Mm -hmm. is a skill spending money meaningfully is a skill In fact, I bet you right now there's people listening to this rolling their eyes. I know how to spend money. Everybody spends money. Well, everybody does, especially in America. We're a consumerist culture, but that doesn't mean we spend it meaningfully. And part of a rich life is that you spend extravagantly on the things you love as long as you cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. And this really, if you dive into this concept, it really opens up lots of cultural values and mores that we have that are often taboo to talk about. I'll give you an example. I go on this podcast recently. It's by a very successful woman. And I noticed uh, that she had this beautiful back. Beautiful. I could tell. And, I, and she was started talking about money and stuff. And I said, what do you love to spend money on? And she smiled and she looked down and she said, well, I kind of spend money friv... I said, what was that word? Friv? Fr- what was that word? And she said... It's a little frivolous. I said, really, what is it? And she said, well, that bag. I said, can I take a look at it? It was an absolutely stunning bag. And I said, would you share how much this bag costs? And she was very, very embarrassed. I said, okay, you don't have to share the amount, but tell me, can you afford it? She goes, yeah. I go, do you love it? She goes, yeah. I go, then what's the problem? See, in America, we have certain things that are okay to spend money on. It's socially acceptable. Uh, And what would those things be? They would be um, uh, anything for kids, anything for pets, totally acceptable. But there are things that are socially unacceptable. Um, Weddings. Anytime anybody writes anything about weddings, all these cheapos come out of the woodwork talking about, I had my wedding for $13 and a bag of jelly beans and we've been married 25 years. It's like a competition to see how little you can spend. Very interesting. That's an interesting cultural value. You can post a picture of your Tesla, but not a picture of a Rolls Royce. Hmm. Why is that? You can post a picture at a certain hotel with your kids, but if it's a little too high end, you're not allowed to post that. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? And so we never really examine these cultural values. And deep down, like this podcast host who I really like and respect, and she earns a ton of money. And if she wants to buy that beautiful bag, she should buy it. We often rebel because society has told us it's frivolous or it's pointless or it's wasteful to spend money on these things. But if they are actually part of your rich life and you can afford it and you love it, I'm all for it.
3: That's awesome. No, I really, uh, I really resonate with that because I know like... And I'm, you know, definitely a ways away from things like retirement or having like a whole, you know, whole lot of money. But even as I've moved out of, I remember moving out of kind of that college stage when my, you know, out to eat budget was I'm like, okay, I get $15 a month to go out to eat.
2: <laughs> totally. And you, you, you calculate everything based on like the number of loads of laundry that you could do. You're like, that's three loads of laundry. Yeah. Yeah. I used to do the same thing.
3: Exactly. How many quarters? And now it's like, and now I'm like, it's, it can be harder to start giving yourself that permission to be like, okay, I have money now, like, and, and I'm saving for these yeah. these things. And it's like, and it's okay for me to go out for like this nicer meal or like, let's go out with friends or like, yeah, I can afford to buy that musical instrument. So it's, it's definitely an, an adjustment. And
1: I think Brett, you had a, a question about that that you wanted to ask. Yeah. What advice do you have for people who are, are transitioning out of that? accumulation stage of wealth, saving up for retirement, moving into that sort of that retirement stage, that maintaining. And I heard this comment from somebody the other day who had just retired and they were like, well, now we have to be so much more careful about how we spend money, right? We can't spend as much money. And I, I've been thinking a lot about that. So, So what advice do you have for those people that are transitioning, making that leap?
2: Well, first of all, I don't give advice to anyone who doesn't ask. I learned that lesson when I was in my early 20s. I was very overbearing. Gotta open up a Roth IRA. And like anyone who starts to understand any topic, you know, you can become a little, I don't know, start to proselytize for it. And I could see people's reactions. Their eyes glaze over. They do not want someone telling them what to do with their money. So let me first just say, I don't give unsolicited advice about money. That's why I started my blog. I'm like, you guys can come to me if you want help. Otherwise, do whatever you want. That's totally cool. I do love hearing from people who are turning in their late 50s, 60s, and they're all different parts of the socioeconomic spectrum. They have saved up a ton of money or they don't have enough and they go, what are we supposed to do? If we're speaking about the people who have accumulated, let's say a considerable amount, they have a actually a challenging phase in front of them. Because if you have gone your entire life saving diligently, investing in low-cost funds, and you've accumulated a a pretty good nest egg. The dream that most of us have, this naive dream, is that one day we're going to retire and then we start retirement. We begin spending money and it just flips. And what almost every retiree discovers is that that's not how it works. You cannot flip your entire worldview one day overnight. In other words, if you worried about money for the last 40 years, you're going to keep worrying about money. This is why I insist you've got to live a rich life today and a richer life tomorrow. Because if you don't build up the skill of spending money on something simple that you like, then you think you're going to suddenly magically be able to start dropping $50,000 on vacation? No, it's impossible. And I speak to lots of couples who do this. I had an episode, it's, uh, the guy's name is Tommy. So I bring couples on my podcast and we talk about real issues and I insist that all of them share their actual numbers. You hear their income, their debt, everything. And Tommy is 63 years old. He comes on the podcast. He has like millions of dollars. And his wife is about to retire. She goes, I want to travel. Like, let's, he's healthy. She's healthy. Let's go. We've got the money. We did it. And he is absolutely paralyzed because he says, We need to save up more. I said, Well, Tommy, I'm looking at your money. You got millions of dollars here. Your house is paid off. Take that trip to New Zealand. He said, We need to save for it. I said, Save for it. Your interest pays for it alone. Let's go. And what this really shows you is that. Most of us believe that we make decisions based on the spreadsheet. Ooh, I'm going to the grocery store. I'm going to calculate the number of cashews and I'm going to buy it. Wrong. We make decisions because of something that our parents said when we were six years old. We make decisions because we've stuck with it for 25 or 40 years. And that's why it's almost like building a new muscle. So for somebody who came to me like Tommy, I had a lot of different conversations I had with him and his wife. I pointed out that, He's not getting any younger. I pointed out that his investments are growing so fast that he will not be able to spend them. He said, well, we don't need to go to New Zealand. I looked at he had a beautiful Christmas tree in his background. I said, we don't need that beautiful Christmas tree. Why'd you get it? And he had a big smile on his face. My family loves it, et cetera. It's looking at the world through an entirely different set of lenses, which is very challenging for people who are diligent with saving because what got them here is not really gonna get them to the next phase of their life.
1: I like that a lot, sort of that it takes practice. You know, it's not it's not an overnight switch. And, and so thinking mm-hmm. about it now gets us so much closer then. Thank you. Thinking and
2: taking action. So like, for example, there's this concept I have of a worry-free number. And you remember when we were like in our early 20s, you go to the grocery store and there's a pack of gum, you just, okay, whatever, I'm gonna get this. It's like a dollar, right? It makes mm-hmm. no difference mm-hmm. in your life. Many of us still have that. We see something, it's a dollar, okay, great. The problem is that we don't adjust that number as we accumulate more. So our worry-free number, the number below which we just don't worry, it's irrelevant to us, stays at a dollar or $5, and then you end up 63 years old and Tommy having millions for some folks and they are still agonizing over these $3 questions. And you know, for me there's once you have started to save and invest, you've actually earned the right to not focus on those questions anymore. And now you have a responsibility to focus on bigger questions. What type of memories do I wanna create? How can I make this easier for me, my family? Uh, How can I make it safer or more fun? There's so many different money lenses that we can look at the world through. I find that cost is the primary money lens, particularly in America. I also find that it's very lazy. It's very lazy to lean on it solely. Just like you can't play a symphony with one instrument, there are times you, you got to have you know the violin. You've got to have different instruments. Same in money. Cost matters. If I'm going to buy black pepper, I really don't care. It's a commodity to me. I'm going to get the cheapest one. But if I'm going to buy something that's meaningful, a vacation, a beautiful anniversary dinner, then why would I want to spend less? Why would I want to only look at it through the lens of cost?
3: Yeah, and I think that that's... that. It reminded me of a recent experience I had. So, uh, you know, like last year, cause everyone, everyone has a different lens. Everyone has that different, you know, what is, what's it worth to you? I know that for you, you know, you talk about your, uh, your money rules and one of yours is, you know, you always, fly business class uh, for flights that are like longer than than four hours. And um, I was recently in Japan last year with my partner and, you know, I had, st- I've started a lot of my travels mm-hmm. in college. So it was always like, how can I do this? Like as cheap as possible. And I'm doing like work away programs and, you know, I'm sardined in the back of the airplane. And when she flew out, she flew herself business class. Cause she's like, this is a long flight. And on the way back, she was like, I would like to buy, I don't want to sit in the back of the plane, I would like to buy us an upgrade. And I remember that that was a really hard that was an interesting conversation for us. Because I for so long have been like, I don't know, I'm usually, you know, it's not like it's my favorite thing to be in the back of the plane. But I, I was thinking through that lens of, I'm like, that's, that's a lot of money. I was like, that's like, you know, through my mind, I'm like, that's a new iPad. That's you know a week's worth of of meals you know on another trip um and so we had an interesting conversation about that same thing through those those values and um we did end up uh upgrading mm-hmm. and i was like oh actually this is really nice <laughs> like these are nice seats i feel much more comfortable i feel more rested when i got off the plane and i can understand that moving forward you know that is one of those things it's like oh she sees this through a different lens um moving forward we're definitely going to probably be doing this more on long flights if i'm flying alone and i want to save that money i can put myself in the back of the plane but you know i'm going to uh when i'm flying with her we're going to be much more open to making sure that we are you know also living her rich life and to me that really brings to mind, you know, one of your other phrases that you use is living outside the spreadsheet. You know, when I was looking at that and Mm -hmm. and my rich life, I was like, that was very much a spreadsheet calculation. And she was like, no, it helps me feel better. I feel less claustrophobic. I'm more rested when I get off the plane. She's like, and, you know, I know it's money, but we can afford it. Um, and You know, that was it was an interesting uh, it was an interesting experience that reading, you know, then later going through and reading all your stuff. I was like, oh, you know, this was I was like, that was very much one of those differences and kind of lenses and experiences that we've had. And it was very fascinating. So, yeah, I guess with with that, are there any other, you know, why do you think that that concept of living outside the spreadsheet when it comes to your rich life? Like, what does that mean to you and, and why is that so
2: you know empowering and popular? Well, I think that um, that is specifically addressed to personal finance nerds mm. who run ten thousand Monte Carlo simulations, and they go, "The ten thousand and second is really gonna blow my mind." And I go, "Listen, at a certain point, you've automated your money. Your investments are automatically allocated. They're properly diversified. You know exactly when your debt payoff date is, or when you're going to be a millionaire, or whatever it is your goal is. There are steeply diminishing returns." to continuing to visit the same subreddits and continuing to tweak your model And often what you find is that people become quite addicted to the minute control over changing some little detail. They become comfortable with it and they think that that provides the meaning. And what they've done is they've really lost the plot. The plot is not to get the perfect financial model. The plot is not even to accumulate as much money as possible. That's not the point. The point is to live a rich life. And so once you've got it cooking, like making Thanksgiving dinner, you put the turkey in the oven, you're not sitting there fiddling with it and opening it up and putting toothpicks in it. It's like, let it cook. And go and hang out with the family. And that's the point of living outside the spreadsheet. You actually do not need to tweak everything every single day. If anything, I encourage people spend less than one hour per month on your finances. That's what I do. Check your investments every three to six months. There's really no reason for you to be doing it more. In fact, if anything, you're going to destroy your returns by fiddling around with it. And this is hard for people because they go, oh, what am I supposed to do? I go, you're supposed to live your rich life. That's actually the next chapter. Turn the page. So what does that mean? That means I ask people, what do you love to spend money on? And I, and I start to get into their money dials. Let me ask both of you guys. What do you love, not like, but love to spend money on? Brett, do you want to go?
1: Sure. Yeah. I actually, I've, I've been thinking about this because, um, you know, reading through your material... Awesome. Uh, you know, what is my rich life? And I've actually thought about it a lot. So I, I saw you speak at FinCon in 2019. And, and so it's been in my brain since then. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, it was actually a little different. That So I only work part time. And that's my rich life is that I have chosen to earn less money than I could, because that empowers me to, you know, manage my household, fix the car when it needs mm-hmm. to be fixed, cook dinner. And then when my partner comes home, we get to just hang out with each other, right? Nothing else has to be done most of the time. And we just get to have that. How would you describe that in a word? Quality time? Love it. Okay. Quality
2: time. Beautiful. All right. And what about for you, Camden? I think for me, one word would be
3: experiences and whether that's with friends, Um, travel, I think would be another word. I love to travel. I love to be able to go to Japan, visit my friends there, um, other parts of the world. Okay.
2: Love it. So travel and quality time. Let's play this. Let's play this out. All right. So I ask people, what do you love to spend money on? The most common response is food. The next most common response is travel. So we're in good company. The third most common response is health and wellness. Then the fourth is mind, convenience. And then there's a variety of others. Okay. I call these money dials because you can turn them up or turn them down. So now I have a second question for you guys what if you could quadruple the amount of money you spend on
1: your money dial what would it look and feel like for you what do you think Brett I would love to be in a position where my wife could also work part-time Ooh. and to enable us to have even more quality time together
2: and and what would you do with that quality time like are you
1: are you still uh, at home tell me about that I think we would travel more absolutely um, we hmm. we really like to travel like where? We really like going to national parks. That's a big thing we like to do. Um, we both speak awesome. French. We'd love to spend more time in France. Um, we've never actually been able to go together. Mm. Uh, we like Camden. is only about seven hours from me. Okay. So it'd be wonderful to go visit him more. Hold on a second. This is so interesting. First of all, that's cool. I didn't know you speak
2: French. That's awesome. Um, can we zoom in? Pick one, national parks or France. Which one gets you more excited? Me, national parks. Love it. Okay. And would would your partner feel the same way? She would probably choose France. <laughs> okay that's okay you know one of the beautiful things about a rich life is you actually don't have to agree on everything and probably the two of you could probably do both so absolutely you're here so let's go with you national park okay what's one that you haven't gone to yet that you want to go to
1: i really want to go to glacier bay national park but where's that it's in alaska
2: oh okay cool all right beautiful so you quadruple your spend that you're currently spending on quality time what does that trip look and feel like
1: so this is, this is what I've thought about. Um, the trip would be we get to go up to uh, Glacier Bay. Uh, you can do in Glacier Bay uh, fjords. There's all these fjords and glaciers fall straight into the ocean. And it's kind of hard to get to these glaciers, but you can do these kayak trips these three four five day kayak trips where you get a kayak right next to these glaciers you get to see them fall into the ocean sometimes you can see whales and you're just in this remote you know fjords a guide's there so we're not gonna you know drown because we're not super experienced kayakers um that's what it'd be you know it's it's not a cheap experience but it would be time together in places we love experiencing something much more thoroughly than just taking a boat cruise ride through I love it. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful vision. And I haven't ever heard someone
2: describe that exact experience. For me, I get excited when I hear about someone's rich life, even if it's something I would never want to do myself. I go, wow, you have clearly thought about this. It's so intentional. I can almost feel the cold air at, you know, kayaking. I can feel it. And so that gets me excited. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, Camden, coming back to you now, you mentioned travel. What if you could Mm -hmm. quadruple the amount you spend on travel? What would it look and feel like? I think one of the the dreams
3: that I've harbored, so I guess going back to... So I, before... Before the pandemic had shut everything down, I was fortunate enough to be able to travel to Japan basically every year. And I lived there for a year and I have a lot of friends there and it's I really consider it one of my second homes. And I think for me, if I were really able to you know quadruple that, um, my plan someday is to be able to spend you know several months a year there. Um, and there's complications that might come with it, but I'd love to own a house. Uh, and I'd love to be kind of more out in a smaller town, out in rural Japan. I'd love to be able to... Okay. Um, connect in with a, a smaller community and really become part of that it's it's a very different experience uh, to me than just you know, touristing around the cities, which is fun. And I love doing that. And I love trying all the food. But I love really being able to get out in the countryside and and meet people and connect with people. And I've had a lot of beautiful opportunities to become part of that community. And I would love to find a place that I can really set down and be like, you know, even if I'm not maybe here full time, because I'm not sure my partner, I'm not sure she would want to live in Japan full time. But it's like, I have this place that I can go to for three months out of the year, four months out of the year at different times and be part of this community and, and can continue kind of my love of of exploring this this area that for me
2: is a real concrete goal all right beautiful so this is great so do you all see how we're now really starting to design the rich life it's not just a dream it's not something in the back of the head what i do is i try to bring it to the forefront Okay, you want to go to Glacier Bay. What seat on the airline are you going to sit in? How long is the trip? What time of the year? What guide are you getting? Oh, you want to make it a little more luxurious? Uh, Food is waiting for you when you get back home. No, you want to do it on your own? No guide? Great. Talk to me about that. I want you to really get crystal clear with what the vision of a rich life is. Too often, people say, I want to travel. I go, great. Where do you want to go? Uh Europe. I go, "What? The, that's not... where." And by the end, working with them, you know, I'm gentle. Sometimes I get a little frustrated, but I do want them to articulate something like, you know, my partner and I are sitting um, in Rome watching the sunset, drinking Italian wine uh, over the Colosseum. Now that's a vision. Beautiful. Now we can start to reverse engineer that and use money for it. I need vivid, specific details in order to help people craft a rich life. You need it too, because otherwise we live in this comfortable vagueness. Oh, travel. Oh, I love food. Okay, great. Well, tell me where you want to go. And let's actually calculate it because you might discover that your rich life, which you've put it off for 20 years, is quite affordable. You could figure it out in six months. I remember a podcast guest who came on and she told me that she was really frustrated because she and her husband had bought a house. They were spending all this money on it, but her dream was to buy a beach house. I said, okay, beach house. She grew up on a beach house, etc. I said, what do you love about a beach house? Want to create the memories. Want to bring my niece and nephew. Okay, great. But they just couldn't afford to do it right now. So she said, we need to pay this house off, fix all the stuff. And 20 years from now, I can get this beach house. said 20 years. I'm not, who the hell's going to wait 20 years for you to live your rich life? I'm not that patient. Let's get to it right now. Let's live your rich life today and a richer life tomorrow. And what we discovered is that people often get fixated on a very specific way that they have to do something. She believed she needed to buy a beach house. She had to buy it. Why? Because Americans are obsessed with home ownership. Even though it often does not make any financial sense to buy. I said, you know, if you want a beach house, you want to take your niece and nephew, what if you just rented it for a week? Why don't you just start there? And you could watch the visible turmoil because in her rich life, it was always a given that she would own this beach house. And she even admitted it didn't have to be nice. It could be dilapidated. I said, you would rather own a dilapidated beach house than rent it for a weekend or five weeks and begin creating those memories now. And there was a beautiful turning point where she realized she had been living in the comfortable vagueness. But if she could get specific, I want to create memories with my niece and nephew and my husband that she could shortcut her way and save 25 years. That is why I'm in such a rush to help people live their rich life. Because life is short, people die, people get sick, things happen, and I don't want people to wait until some magical day when they're ready to do it. I want them to start doing it now and think of an even richer life over time.
0: Before we continue, let's pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com david. That's linkedin.com david to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts, high-yield cash accounts where your money can earn 11 times the national average, and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank.
1: I love it. Yeah, I love how much more detail you can tease out of those as, as you start to think about what are the specifics and, and you get the the vision. Thank you. I wanted to hark back actually to something you were saying earlier. You were talking about investing, you know, you spend an hour a month on your finances and, and there reaches this, I, I love the example of the turkey, you know, the more you fiddle with it, like it's just let it be. Why do you think there is so much power in simplicity when it comes to investing? Oh, well, <laughs> there is this belief in America,
2: we have this deep cultural belief that complexity is good. And it's really dichotomous and fascinating. We surround ourselves with complexity. We buy AV systems that have five remote controls. We have all kinds of gadgets. We all have a junk drawer where we put our plugs and stuff like that. But at the same time, we all idolize this idyllic lifestyle where we go live in the country and you know, life is simple. We watch movies about that. But when it, if somebody came into your living room and said, let's get rid of half this junk, Oh, no, no, no. I need that special spatula because once every six years we cook that cheesecake. This is a cheesecake cutter, Ramit. I said simplicity. And so one of the messages that I want to share with people is that the more financially successful you get, the more you have to fight for simplicity. I fight for it every day. I'll give you some examples. I have two or three credit cards, really simple. cashback, a travel card, and I have one luxury card I just use because it gets me some lounge access. That's it. I am not buying, I don't have my Amazon card, and Costco card, and Express card. And people go, well, it's so simple, Ramit, you get 5% off groceries on Tuesday, but then you get 1% off when you get your tires fixed at Costco. Who the hell wants to think about this? Why are you spending all this cognitive energy to eke out an extra $58 a year? It makes no sense. Similarly, I have a few accounts. They're the best accounts and I keep them for years. You see people rate chasing all the time. Ramit, Ally Bank raised my interest rate by 0.2%. Should I compare it over here, 0.31? I go, can you actually calculate 0.11% times your balance? The answer is people are rate jumping and jumping savings accounts to make an extra $4 a month. That's literally a $4 question. Why on earth would you do anything to get $4 when instead you can focus on the $30,000 questions? What's my savings rate? What's my investment rate? Is my asset allocation correct? And then once you dial all your numbers in from my conscious spending plan, et cetera, you go, okay, great, done, Now I've earned the right to focus on more meaningful things. Did I spend time with my family today? Did I compliment them? Am I generous enough? Am I having fun? These are the more meaningful parts of a rich life. Less quantifiable, because again, in America, we value that which is quantifiable. But in my opinion, the most valuable things are the things we can't quantify. How long did you hug your kids for? How many nice things did you say to your spouse? Did you surprise them with some flowers? Can't quantify it. Probably way more important than jumping Ally Bank.
3: Yeah, and I—that's I, something that we do talk about a lot, um, just on on the podcast, on our membership site, Money for the Rest of Us Plus—is this, you know, in your book you kind of divide your your two uh, favorite, you know, your favorite uh, investment that you talk about are target date funds, very simple,
2: straightforward. Oh yeah. People get, people get really mad. Can I tell can I tell you about this? So I love target date funds. You know, it's like, they're awesome. My family, if they ask me, where should I invest? I go, just pick this simple and it's one fund and it's automatically diversified, etc. And the, the reasons people give to not do this are actually comical to me. They go, well, it's so expensive. I go, what are you live? Are you living 20 years in the past? Target date funds are extremely inexpensive. The fees are basically zero. Well, the glide path, I go, first of all, if you even know what a glide path is, that's amazing. But uh you're fine you can get a a longer out fund if you want 2070 if you really care the fact is funds should probably get more conservative over time now if you have a stylistic disagreement with the glide path fine change your fund but really deep down we In this individualistic culture believe that we need more control we love it we love the ability to have more control Uh, i need control over um where am i going to put up my tv in my house i need control i need 10 different controls for my ac in my house i need control 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 and money is so counterintuitive because the more control you exert the worse results you get the more you pay the worse results you get Mm. this is unlike anything else in our culture if i'm in new york right now if i go spend twenty dollars on sushi i'll get a certain type of sushi If I spend $1,000 on sushi, that will have been flown in from Tokyo the same day. I get a better quality service, better quality food. But you don't get that in money, do you? You actually pay more, and you often get less. So when I share little insights about the ultra-wealthy, a lot of people think they have access to all these secret investments that get them crazy returns. I go, listen, I know about these investments, okay? Okay. Private equity, VC, I know about them. I have access to a lot of them. And while there may be a few investments that the average investor cannot get, that does not mean they are better. And this infuriates people because deep down we wanna believe that the ultra-rich have access to some secret investments. But ultimately, a Vanguard fund is actually fantastic and often outperforms what the ultra-wealthy are investing in. Now, structurally, the ultra-wealthy have access to certain tax advantages that I think are totally ridiculous and they should have their taxes raised including on me, but it's not that there's some secret dungeon where once you make a certain amount of money, you get to go in and pick up like Indiana Jones, some secret investments that just get you 40% returns. That's not how it works. And so again, fighting for simplicity means acknowledging, wow, I only need a couple of credit cards. I only need a savings account and a checking account. I only need a simple investment portfolio, whether it's a target date fund or a few index funds, and I'm good. Then I automate my money, chapter five of my book, contribute as much as possible every single month, don't even think about it anymore, and get on with my rich life. Simple, not particularly entertaining. If you want entertainment, watch a Netflix show, but that's the way it should be. Investment is not for entertainment, it's to make you money.
3: hmm And that's we spend. So we definitely talk about target date funds. We spend a lot of time talking about, like you said, index funds. Um, We tend to be, you know, we have like a little bit more control, but we we like that simplicity, like you said, of of index funds following the market. You get to kind of ride that up and down. And we're very much in that, you know, we're investing for the long term. We're not chasing the hot stocks. We're not looking for, you know, what's what's the exciting <laughs> cryptocurrency. We want people to understand those yeah. things just because they need to understand, like, hey, if you're interested in this, if you're playing around at this for fun, great. But like you need to understand that there's risks. You need to understand that yeah. the long there's long term effects that index funds and other things are very, very good at that. It's going to be your primary wealth driver. One thing I wanted to ask was you know, when it comes to the simplicity, one of the things that can be kind of hard is, you know, looking at the different numbers and, and different drivers of, of index funds rates and following the S&P 500 is you will sometimes notice that those rates will change. You can look at historical rates and you look at rates going forward. And so, you know, with some of your work, and I'm not calling you out on on anything, but it's like, you know, you've mentioned that a good yep. rule of thumb is maybe eight mm-hmm. percent to follow the S&P 500. When we've looked at our, um, you know, like we have a, a product called Asset Camp. When when we look at some of the drivers and we're looking forward, we think that sometimes maybe five or 6% uh, is a, maybe a more conservative or more reasonable thing. And I don't want to necessarily get into hashing out the numbers, but when it comes to that simplicity and thinking about, you know, you're automating your spreadsheets and looking forward, what might change in your investment plan? So if somebody's setting up their investment plan, they maybe set it up with 8% in mind, but then they're like, actually, what if it's more like 5%? Mm. What kind of thoughts might need to go through somebody's mind at that point? You know, does it change radically? Is it just, I just need to put more money in? Is it, I need to diversify and worry about, you know, actually investing in other things? Because people, I think, have a lot of anxiety around that when they see
2: differences in numbers. Yeah. Um, It's it's a good question. And I think that different people can choose uh, different target numbers that they believe their investments Mm -hmm. will hit. I try to be very conservative at 7%. Sounds like you want to be even more conservative at 5%. If that's what you prefer to put in your model, fantastic. Personally, I think that, Mm -hmm. and I I cite in chapter six, um, some of the data on why I think 7% or 8% is quite reasonable. Mm -hmm. But- I think what is uh, what is more important is that first of all, most people are not doing this at all. They're not. They don't even know what seven percent is. Okay, so that's number one. Mm-hmm. If I ask the average person who does not invest, what do you think? What kind of return could you get? They might say, like, they're just as likely to say elephants as they are to say twenty four percent. We should remember where most people are starting with money. Asking people what kind of return rate do you expect? They don't even know it's a percentage. So I have a lot of compassion for that. That we're not really taught this, nor do we seek it out. Second, I think that uh, people mistake, a common mistake people make, people who are listening to this podcast who tend to be a little bit more financially savvy, is they over-index for precision. They sit here at age 40, 45, and they go, I need to create a model that accounts for every single thing that can happen in my life. What a waste of time. You're not going to account for everything. Somebody's going to get laid off. Somebody's going to get sick. You're going to move because your spouse got a new job. You're never going to account for everything. It's actually a folly to try to account for that. I'm much more focused on getting people 85% of the way there. Do we have a path towards being financially comfortable and, in fact, even living a rich life? Great. I personally like to build in a nice margin of safety because I never want to have a negative surprise. Not at the end of the year, certainly not at the end of my life. I do that in a variety of ways. I assume 7%, which in my opinion is conservative. For my expenses, I add on 15% on top of everything because I know there are things that I forget. I know there are emergencies that come up, all of that. I keep a little extra Saved up just in case. I don't mind the cash drag. Again, I'm optimizing for long-term. Ultimately, I'm not trying to perfectly predict when I'm going to have X dollars or Y dollars. I think that's pointless, especially the longer you go. It's like trying to launch a paper airplane that's gonna go six miles and trying to predict where it's gonna land. Let's just worry about getting that thing flying, right? Let's worry about it going a long way. That's about as far as we need to go in the early days. Now, this changes as you become 55, 58, 60. It becomes much more important to dial those things in, particularly when it comes to retirement. You want to know. Of mm-hmm. course, if you've done your planning early, if you're fortunate enough and you were you know, thoughtful enough to do it and lucky enough, fantastic. You probably have more than you know what to do with. And that's a different conversation. But I think my main message is that people tend to over-focus on precision early in their life. When I would say that's a mistake, I would instead say, get 85% of the way there and then move on with your life. No, awesome. I, that, I like that. 85 is good. Like You put the, you put it in the oven, now get on with it. That's exactly where people, especially optimizers, they love to continue optimizing the turkey. It's like, get out, get out of the kitchen and take all that effort and energy and anxiety and focus it on the people you love. Focus it on the things you love. That is a rich life today.
1: I like that. I, I definitely resonate with that. I, uh, I tend to try to go 100% and, and the reminder to be like, 85 is good. Like, just start. I love it. And, and you may have already sort of answered this next question, but what, what would you say to people who feel like they are behind financially or late to starting investing?
2: I would say that it's never too late to start, but the later it gets, you have to be much more aggressive. Obviously, when you look at the levers when it comes to financial success, time is one of the most important levers. So if you started at age 20, for the fortunate few who did probably going to be in a really great position. Now, guess what? Not a lot of people start at age 20. They don't know. They're not taught. They also don't want to. Okay. I have a lot of compassion. I wish everybody started at age 15. That's, I wish I started deadlifting when I was 15. I didn't even know what deadlifting was. So I had to go through my own journey with physical fitness to be like, how do people do that? Oh, I need to undo all these preconceived notions I have in my head. Now I need to find people to teach me. It took me 10 plus years to really start to understand how this stuff works. And so I have a lot of compassion for people who don't start early in life because we all have something in our lives that we're not doing. The math is um, powerful and provocative. And I think that what happens is, particularly for people who um, don't start until later in life, they, they often don't even engage with the math. It's just a feeling. And really that's what money is for most people. It's a feeling. It is not a spreadsheet. It's not return rates. It's not even how much they spend per month. Half of the people I talk to don't even know how much they make per year. 50% do not know how much they make per year. 90% do not know how much they owe, okay? And 95% of them do not know when their debt payoff date is. But almost all of them feel worried about money. Their feelings are the primary way that they engage with money. And so when you have somebody who says, is it too late? I feel like it's too late. I'm so worried. First thing to do is say, look, we got, it's never too late, but we've got to start now. Every day matters. And the second is to start, you know, we start off asking them, what is your rich life? Tell us what that looks like. And a lot of them will have very fear-based responses. You know, I just don't want to run out of money. Uh, I'm really worried. And they spin. People with problems love to tell you about their problems. And often you have to let them do that. That's okay. It's become a primary way for them to grapple with the challenge. But I try to gently redirect them to something they do want. What would it look like? Could be as simple as being able to go to the grocery store and not have to compare cereal. Okay. Would that feel good to you? that would feel so amazing. Let's start there. That's two bucks. Okay, great. And over time, I do this on my podcast live so you can hear how it actually happens. We talk about what is money like in their relationship. Often couples only talk about money when there's a problem. They're not proactive, they're entirely reactive. We talk about what would it feel like to be on a team and you can just see them. You can see them because I put the, the episodes on YouTube. You can see them starting to smile and starting to realize, oh my gosh, there could be a light at the end of the tunnel now. Because, you know, based on some of the ways I asked you guys, like, what is your rich life? You know, a lot of people, they give me these really vague answers. The truth is most people have really vague answers about their retirement. They don't really know what their retirement's going to look like, but they know that they feel really behind. First, I tackle their feelings. Then I help them design the next chapter of their life. Uh, and that's the way I approach it. That's really awesome. And I think really
3: helpful. Thank you. Brett, did you have something? Okay. So this next one is, is our last question um, and one that we're also excited to ask. So obviously you've had a lot of really, uh, you know, cool experiences. You've spent a lot of time teaching people about finance, about investment, about money. You know, but looking back at your education, you know, you got some really excellent degrees in, in technology and psychology and sociology. And, you know, like Brett and myself and like a lot of our listeners, people, a lot of people would say maybe you don't come from a quote unquote traditional finance investment background. You can go to school for it. We didn't go to school for it. You know, our father went to school for it, you know, worked in, in investments for decades. But a lot of people like, you know, us, we didn't necessarily go to school for it. And I think a lot of people feel anxiety about that when they start taking on their own, you know, investments, their personal finances. They, Like you said, they feel more comfortable when it's like, well, I'll pay someone else. They're an expert. From your perspective, what would you say to people who are feeling that way? Is there anything that they mm. need to be careful of? But are there also any strengths that you've noticed from just coming at finances from your own personal <laughs> experiences, from a more maybe holistic approach, rather than you know it being a negative that I'm, quote, not a traditional finance expert, I'm myself, you know, what, what would you say to people that are worried about that or feeling anxiety about that?
2: I have a strong belief that most people can manage their money quite ably. And in our culture, money is seen as this technical thing and it's about PE ratios and SEP IRAs and diversification. People don't know what that means. And so what do we do? Our natural response is that we ignore it for longer and longer and longer until something happens. Usually people get married, they have kids, or they get divorced, or there's retirement coming up. And that's when they are finally forced to grapple with it. And what do they naturally do? They go, I'm just going to pay someone to take care of this. What I emphasize to people is that it's one thing to pay somebody to take care of your lawn care. It's another to pay somebody to wash your car, or change the oil. I have no problem with that. I have no problem paying premium prices for premium providers. I have no problem with that at all. But you would never pay 1% of your investment portfolio to somebody to mow your lawn. Never. And similarly, I hear a lot of couples who tell me like, I'm not a money person. I just want to have someone looking, you know, handling it. This is what they do for a living. And I go, okay, okay. But we often conflate the idea, like in a relationship, there'll be one person who takes out the trash. The other person empties the dishwasher. Again, normal in couples, there's sort of these roles that we fall into. But you would never say, oh, he's the one who does the parenting or she's the one who does the parenting. We don't really talk about parenting like that. Both partners are involved if we're in a two-partner relationship. And it's the same with money. Money has got to be a team effort. It is equivalent to parenting. It cuts across everything in a relationship. It is where you live, what you eat, what happens with your kids, in fact, even who you are to some extent. And when it comes to hiring, there are certain situations where it can make sense to hire a financial advisor if you have a large portfolio, if you have a complex financial situation such as stepchildren, inheritance, etc. But the vast majority of people have actually pretty simple financial needs, you know? You've all heard this phrase, uh, "Personal finance is personal." It's a really popular phrase. I actually don't love that phrase at all. I would much rather say, most of us are mostly the same. Because I think this idea that we're all such special snowflakes with individual circumstances is used as an excuse that there's no way I can get started reading a book or listening to a podcast because I have a unique situation. I have two rakes in my backyard, not one. Therefore, your asset allocation does not work for me. It's like, what does it have to do with rakes? Nothing. So, Uh, I have no problem paying for premium providers. I've actually paid for a financial advisor myself as a special project. I hired someone. I said, give me a second set of eyes on my asset allocation. I want to make sure I don't have any blind spots. Happy to pay his hourly rate. Great. Great. But I would never pay AUM, never, never pay 1%, which many people do not realize is essentially 28% of your lifetime returns out the window in fees. 2%, over 55% of your returns out the window in fees. People don't know this, and it is engineered that way so that they don't know. I'm not a fan. I don't want people paying AUM or assets under management. I want them to take control of their money and. If, in the rare case, they need to have a second set of eyes or an expert financial advisor, great. Make sure you're paying them an hourly or per project fee, but most of us can do it on our own.
1: I think that was a great example there at the end of running the numbers, right? What What does a 1% fee mean throughout the lifetime? I've never thought about that. Um, yeah. I think that's...
2: You know, I had I had a young woman who was 31 years old. She wrote me on Instagram, and she had seen me you know, cautioning people about spending 1% AUM, which sounds so innocent. 1%. Oh, that's fine. Like uh, somebody who's like they track the numbers and they watch CNBC every day. I go, okay, let's let's play this out. She made eighty thousand dollars a year, and I said, how much do you think over the course of your life you will pay in investment fees? Let's make a few assumptions. She had no idea. No one, no one can have any idea. It's a very complex question. I said, ballpark it for me. Are we thinking? Like, over the course of the next 34 years of your life, is it going to be 10000 Is it going to be $10 million? Give me a range. She said, mm, top of my head, I think it will be $30,000 total. So basically $1,000 a year in fees. I said, okay, how would you feel about that? She said, I'd feel fine. Somebody's taking care of it. Great. I calculated for her, I made some assumptions, which I told her, it was $315,000 in fees. Literally 10 times what she thought over her lifetime. And she was shocked. She wrote "OMG, WTF!" and she was like, is this for real? Think about it. Most of us go our entire lives agonizing over the price of cheesecake or coffee, thinking that some $5 expense is gonna change our life. It's not. If you want the coffee, get it. It changes nothing. Instead, she was being invisibly charged hundreds of thousands of dollars without ever knowing it and actually not even getting better results than a simple Vanguard or Fidelity index fund. These are the kind of phantom costs that I want people to look out for. There are phantom costs in investment fees. There are phantom costs in home ownership, phantom costs in cars. If you just pay attention to those, just those, those are 30000 or even $300,000 questions. Nail those. You can buy all the lattes you want for the rest of your life. Awesome. Well, thank you
0: so much. We appreciate Ramit taking the time to share his insights on living a rich life. One point of clarification in the discussion, Ramit and Camden were talking about rates of return or expected rates of return for stocks at 7% versus 5%. Those were real rates of return net of inflation. And so a 7% real return would be equivalent to potentially a 10% nominal return for stocks, whereas... Camden mentioned that Money for the Rest of Us, we're more comfortable with a 5% real return, which equates to 7% to 8% return for stocks for a globally diversified equity portfolio. We can go through the numbers, but we wanted to clarify that because it wasn't specified that these were real net of inflation returns in the discussion. At the end of the day, it didn't really matter because we were focusing on the principles underlying that, and Ramit did a great job discussing the principles. I have thoroughly enjoyed teaching you about investing on this podcast for almost nine years now, but some topics are just better explained in writing or with the chart. That's why we have a weekly email newsletter, the Insider's Guide. In that newsletter, I share charts, graphs, and other materials that can help you better understand investing. It's some of the most important writing I do each week. I spend a couple hours on that newsletter each Wednesday morning as I try to share something That will be helpful to you. If you're not on the email list, please subscribe. Go to moneyfortherestofus.com to subscribe to the free Insider's Guide weekly email newsletter. Everything shared on this podcast episode was for general education. Your specific risk situation wasn't considered. There was no investment advice given. This was simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.